Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, a political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. My name is Sam Friedman and today we come to you live from the Centre for Progressive Policy's Inclusive Growth Conference at London's Royal Society. Sadly, there is no Aisha with me today as she is ill, uh, but get well soon, Aisha. Um, but a very special show today as we will shortly be hearing from the former Labour leader and current Shadow Secretary for Energy Security and Net Zero, Ed Miliband. And later we'll be joined by... Theresa May and Vince Cable's former special advisor, Giles Wilkes, and the CEO of the Centre for Progressive Policy, Charlotte Aldrich, to get their thoughts on what he had to say. Now, we know that Labour are seeking to generate economic growth, and they hope to do so by transforming Britain into a so-called clean energy superpower. But how would they make sure all areas of society benefited? Today, we ask how Labour can achieve fair growth. I'll be quizzing Ed Miliband about this shortly, but first let's hear some of his keynote conference speech on Labour's plans for fair green growth. Put your hands together and welcome our keynote speaker, the Right Honourable Ed Miliband MP. Ed. Let me start with a, uh, an opinion poll. I'm not a great fan of opinion polls, given my experience of 2015. You may understand that. Uh, it feels like the UK is going through a period of steep decline. 78% of people agreed with the statement and 5% of people disagreed with that statement. So my case today to you is that the clean energy economy represents the best opportunity for the UK to confront the twin challenges of stagnant living standards and low growth. We've got proof of concept in a way from the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, as many of you will know, President Biden's big 10-year plan for public investment. And it's to the great credit of my friend and colleague Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, that she has really enthusiastically embraced the lessons of IRA and put it at the centre of our agenda, what she calls Securonomics. And I want to suggest to you four principles about how we believe we should go about this task. The first principle is about clarity of mission and, and really focus for a government. And I think it's underestimated the extent to which Keir's five missions really, really matter, not simply for political campaigns, but for what will happen if there is a Labour government. 
The second principle is that to achieve our mission and get the economic success we want to see, public investment and private investment must go hand in hand. The third principle, and this is an important lesson from the US too, is that the state has a shaping role, not just for how much the private sector invests, but crucially where it invests. And I think it's right to say that the economics of place is central to the problems of the last few decades and has got to be central to the clean energy economy we want to build. The fourth and final principle of our approach, again learning from the US, is that we need the clean energy economy to deliver not just work, but high quality work with good terms and conditions. And here again, I think the thinking has evolved because the truth is it's clear from much economic analysis that the decline of organized labor, of unions, has led to casualization and insecurity and greater earnings inequality. And this is just the start of our agenda. The point of our Green Prosperity Plan, ramping up to £28 billion a year of public investment in the second half of the parliament, as we meet the fiscal, our fiscal rules, is to invest across the board in decarbonizing our country in a way that will maximize the economic opportunities for Britain. Because I started by talking about the mood of the country, and I began by suggesting that our country's problems are big. And that is true. But there's a bigger problem than the fact that our country's problems are big. It's that the politics of the current government are so pathetically small. Thank you so much. Thanks very much uh, for that. Uh, I am going to do about 20 minutes of Q&A. Yeah. Your Aisha has a recap uh, for I'm these Aisha. purposes. Uh, yes, Aisha is unfortunately ill, my, my podcast co-star. Um, so, do you think uh, it's a diplomatic illness? Uh, Aisha used to work for me, so I wonder if it was a sort of PTSD situation. No, I think, I think it's because she insists on going on Good Morning Britain at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, well, that might be. her to sickness. Yeah, that, um, might be, that might be true, actually. Unfortunately, you have me instead for, for 20 minutes. She would be then, doing impressions of me, by the way, uh, if so no pressure, Sam, but you might have to do an impression I'm, of me. I'm definitely not going to oh, right, pretend okay, that. We've fine. not met before, okay, so I'm fine. not going to start doing right, impressions okay, of enough. you straight off the bat. That's a relief, anyway. Um, I wanted to start by asking about where you ended, essentially, your differences with, with, the, yeah. with the current government. It feels like a lot of British politics at the moment is sort of almost like a dance of the dividing lines. As Conservatives try and set a dividing line on tax and spend or immigration or culture wars, and you guys say, no, we're not going to engage with that one. We're just, we don't want to have that fight. This fight, when Rishi Sunak sort of tried to create this dividing line in his speech um, a few months ago, you've sort of gone, yes, we'll have that one. We want to have this fight. This is a fight where we actually think we're on the right side of this dividing line, not just in terms of the policy, but in terms of the politics. What makes you think that sort of public opinion is with you on this one and not where, where sort of Sunak is and sort of saying, actually, yes, we want to do something about this, but people don't want to pay you know, up front you know, from their pocket at a difficult time for it? I mean, look, first of all, you've got to do the right thing. I don't want to sound sort of too unfashionable, but I mean, how can you look at the climate crisis and say, oh, well, the answer is let's delay? You know, we are heading to sort of hell in a handbasket, according to the UN and everyone else. We are, I think, something like 80 days this year have been over 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So, look, you start with the with the sort of, the facts on the ground, if you like. Secondly, I think if we'd been having this conversation 10 years ago, a bit more when I was Energy Secretary, we might have said, well, 
green is more expensive in the short run, but it's the right thing to do in the, in the long run. That was the sort of stern report of the 2000s, which said that the long-term costs of action are less than the long-term costs of inaction. But what was true in the long run is now true in the short run too, at least in some areas. If you take my area, the area I talked about, our clean power mission, renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels. They're not just more secure, but they are cheaper. Last summer, they were nine times cheaper. They're still significantly cheaper, even with the rise in offshore wind. This isn't a climate versus cost of living choice. This is tackle the climate crisis and the cost of living choice. You know, on the public, I think the best work actually has been done by Luke Trill from More in Common on this. It's just not true that there is a sort of culture war waiting to happen among the British public on climate. Whether you're a Red Wall voter, a Tory voter, Brexit voter, okay, it's different priorities for people, but people get this as a problem. People in my constituency get this as a problem. And in a way, I think it's sort of a bit insulting of Rishi Sunak to say, oh, well, you know, I can sort of try and create a culture war over climate. That's not what my constituents want. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think they've, they've misjudged public opinion, but there are going to come points, and we saw it with you, Leslie, that's not about climate change, that's about um, air pollution, where there is a trade-off to be made between um, something that will affect the public and your agenda. I mean, if you look at, uh, at your, your 2030 goal around electricity yeah. net zero, it's very hard to see how you can upgrade the grid without, without sure. some additional cost to energy bills. So how are you going to manage those trade-offs okay. when you get to them? Okay, that's a good, good question. So, to, look, first of all, just on the grid, there is a cost to, to uh, building the new grid, um, and that sort of national grid has set that out, and the government notionally wants to get there. But any cost of building a new grid is massively outweighed by the, by the reductions in costs from having the renewables on the system. I mean, these delays of 12 years are, are literally driving up bills. Just to give you one quite sort of, you know, just one simple fact, the onshore wind ban uh, in England has cost every family in the country, £180 on their bills, is costing £180 on their bills annually. If we'd had all that onshore wind, uh, bills would have been £180 lower. Now, then on your point about where, where there are upfront costs, so for example, the transition to heat pumps, for example. So this is why I think conservatism has a problem in addressing this, because the obvious answer is you've got to collectivise the costs in some way. You know, our insulation plan... Uh, helping people with heat pumps, which, to be fair, the government's done in a very modest way. If you say to people, you're going to have to bear these costs alone, people aren't going to come with us, you know. But if you say, look, we recognise it in some areas, and by the way, home heating is the sort of... Home heating and, and homes, I think, is the biggest single area of cost. Um, look, we think there is a role for public investment because this is a way to make the transition fair and it is in our economic interests as a country to do it, then I think you can take people with you. Well, but there's, within that, there's another trade-off, isn't there? Because the reason we haven't had wind farms being built in England is because people don't like things being built near their houses. We have a big problem with, with planning in this country now. Obviously, uh, Keir Starmer has talked, yeah. Rachel Reeves has talked yeah. about taking on the planning system. Lots of politicians have said that and, and then found it was very difficult to do. You know, when you've got every morning in the papers stories about people saying, we don't want pylons next to us, we don't want wind turbines next to us, how are you going to push through the planning change necessary? Okay, so good, so good question. I mean, on onshore wind, the polling figures are, are fascinating because the government, uh, Desnes, produces their own opinion polls 
And by 20 to 1, people support onshore wind. And even when you live near onshore wind, because they ask this question, there is majority support for it. It's just not, it's just not the case that people... You know, of course, there are some people in a community who oppose onshore wind. The problem is that the government introduced a planning rule in England which said if one person objects, what, literally one person, then it can't go ahead. Well, developers have just given up on onshore wind in England. Look, on the, on the uh, grid, the pylons, this is a big challenge. Uh, this is definitely a big challenge for the coming years, whoever is in government. My sort of answer to this is... One, you've got to make sure there is proper community benefit. It should be compulsory, not optional. So communities and people who have pylons near them need to uh, get benefit from it. Uh, secondly, uh, obviously we need to hear people's voices and people need to be consulted with. But thirdly, we are going to have to build. I mean, if we don't build, then we're going to remain... You know, it's, it's often underestimated. We only imported 5% of our gas from Russia at the beginning of, this, uh, of the crisis when Russia invaded Ukraine. But we were the worst-hit country in Western Europe. Well, how does that figure? Well, because we're so dependent on fossil fuels. And whether fossil fuels are, come from the North Sea or are imported from abroad, they, we pay the same price for them. That's the choice, really. We can carry on being... And, and the OBR has been brilliant on this. The OBR and the um, Infrastructure Commission in their reports. We can either carry on being exposed in that way, leave it even aside climate change, or we can have a more secure way forward. Mm. Let's let's get on to this sort of this sort of catalytic um, investment yeah, that yeah. you talked about yeah. in, in your in your speech. Yeah. Um, you mentioned right at the end the sort of vexed twenty eight billion, the sort of Schrodinger's twenty eight billion that exists or doesn't exist depending on which newspaper briefing you read. It, it sounded from what you were saying it does exist, which is good. Of course, um, uh, but also it would be good to hear a little bit about what, what you actually want to spend it on rather than just the sort of figure itself. So what we've said so far, and we've been deliberately cautious in our commitments because. Clearly, we're working on our uh, plans, and we said it's going to ramp up to 28 billion a year in the second half of the coming parliament, uh, if, if there's a Labour government. So what we said so far is 8 billion on our uh, National Wealth Fund. Uh, that's 8 billion, sorry, not a, a year, 8 billion over the, over the uh, period. And that's for things like at the port infrastructure, which is a big deal, because what, you know, it's kind of underestimated in public debate in this there is huge anger in communities because they see these enormous, particularly in Scotland but elsewhere, they see these enormous offshore wind farms going up and none of the manufacturing is done in that community. This is just off the, off the coast. Now, why is that? Partly because our ports haven't been fit for purpose, partly because there haven't been proper incentives, so we've said there'll be this £2.5 billion um, British jobs bonus, £500 million a year to incentivise companies to invest. Things like the steel that I talked about, the partnership with the steel industry, electric vehicles. So that's the National Wealth Fund with the British Jobs bonus on top. Secondly, we've said that we will ramp up to £6 billion a year of the 28 in insulation and home energy. And that's because when you look at the... If we're, you know, we're the lowest heat pump take-up in the whole of Europe, I think... If you look at that, that challenge to make it affordable for people, you've got to both have, you know, you've got to both insulate homes, but otherwise, you know, the heat pumps won't be as effective, and you've got to make them affordable for people. Now, hopefully, the, the, the costs will come down over time, but I think the, the National Infrastructure Commission said we need to spend about two billion a year on the subsidising the cost of heat pumps, and obviously we. we you know, we haven't committed to that figure, but, but that's a sort of important thing in our uh, thinking. So 
they're the main commitments we've made. In addition, we've said, and this is something that happens on the, uh, in Germany and Denmark a lot, and I think is, is, could be, we could do a lot more here on this. We've said that GB Energy over the course of a parliament will spend about three billion on, invest about three billion through a combination of grants and loans in community energy. Because this is a way to get communities to feel a real benefit from this renewable power revolution. And I think, I think this is a way actually of doing genuine leveling up. I, the largest onshore wind turbine in England is uh, it, uh, the, in the Lawrence Western estate in Bristol. It's owned not by a private company, but by the local community, which has, I mean, this is community wealth building, but through renewables, which has the money flowing back to it. So that gives you a flavor of what we've committed to. But then as we set out our plans, this is a whole economy transformation we're talking about. So everything from nature to transport, uh, to public buildings, things like schools. So all of that, you know, at least are, are candidates to be part mm. of, this, of this change that we're talking about. And this is necessary to get the economic change I talked about, to meet our decarbonisation goals and to get energy bills down. So, I mean, I think what you've sort of committed to there sounds like about six or seven billion a year towards the end of the parliament. Do, are you not worried? You used to work in the Treasury. Are you not worried the Treasury are going to say, OK, we'll have the rest of that, please, for, for, to, to manage our spending review figures, given how tight... No, because we're going to set are. out by the time of the election how we're going to uh, ramp up to 28 billion uh, a year. And, and honestly, you know, I read some of the reports with, about this with bemusement. I mean, you know, Rachel and Keir and I have worked on this plan together over two and a bit years now. It was first announced by Rachel at the party conference in October 2021. It is an absolutely crucial part of our growth story. I think Nick Stern is brilliant on this. He always says this is the growth story of the 21st century. You know, I genuinely believe that if we are in government, we will have in Keir and Rachel people who are, with no disrespect to the previous Labour government, you know, we'll have the most committed prime minister and chancellor uh, that we've had on this agenda. I guess that the reason I think people get a bit confused about it is there's this tension between uh, what you're saying in terms of all this investment you want to do for growth and this sort of ironclad fiscal rule rhetoric. And we don't know what's going to happen to the public finances over the next couple of years. They're not in a great place at the moment after sort of the last 13 years. So there's got to be a chance that we'll be in such a, a difficult position on the public finances that to meet the fiscal rules as they've been set out, you won't be able to go ahead with what you're talking about, even though everyone would love to do it. Well, look, we are confident... Um, and this is why we announced the phasing in. We are confident that we can both meet the 28 billion a year in the second half of the Parliament uh, and our fiscal rules. And that's and you know, Rachel is absolutely clear about this. The fiscal rules are non-negotiable. We're confident we can meet both. And also, Rachel said something very important, which is good chancellors know when to say, and the shadow chancellors know when to say no and when to say yes. And she has been incredibly sparing about, and rightly so, about the priorities that she has. But given that this is our growth mission, and it's such an important mission for our party and indeed for the country, it's absolutely fundamental. I mean, do you think the way... I'm getting into quite nerdy territory, but I'm guessing the audience will go... Yeah, 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 sure. A good, a good audience for these questions. I mean, you, you were involved in, in spending reviews in the Treasury. Do you think the way spending reviews work now allows for the kind of conversations you're talking about? Or do you, need, do you think a Labour government is actually going to need to rethink the way it does spending reviews and the way it sets these kinds of priorities uh, as, you're, as you're thinking about your first year in government should you win the election? I mean, I think, you know, we instituted... I was an advisor in the Treasury uh, many moons ago under Gordon, uh, and we instituted three-year spending reviews. Up to that point, spending reviews had been annual... 
which was a kind of hopeless way of operating, really, um, because it gave no, no ability to plan. I think, though, there is a wider point to your question, which is the role of the Treasury in meeting this agenda. And I don't think this is a sort of criticism in any way of Treasury civil servants, but I think how the Treasury becomes a sort of ally of this agenda, which is obviously what Rachel, you know, it's obviously central to Rachel's mission, is a sort of really important question. And also, look, frankly, and again, this audience will know this very, these questions very well, and you will from the Institute for Government, you know, how you genuinely, this is why I think the missions thing is a real insight, how you sort of break down the silos, a sort of cliche, but how you break down the silos, that, you know, this, this, the agenda I've talked about can't be delivered by my department if, if I'm the Secretary of State on my own. It requires DLUP and the Treasury and the business department. And, you know, there's lots and lots of departments that are involved in this. And in a way, there's a sort of family of departments that are relevant to the whole net zero transition. I mean, every department in a way, but a department like DEFRA, DFT, you know, absolutely fundamental to this. So we are, you know, as part of our sort of preparing for... Uh, the eventuality of being in government, thinking about how do you, what, you know, what is the way to live this? And I actually also take quite a lot of inspiration from, if you take 2030, from the vaccine task force model, mm. because that was a way of bringing, of, 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 if you like, breaking down those silos. So we're thinking about those questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was going to come on to the missions because I, I can see that they are a big part of, of Labour's thinking at the moment, but they are so antithetical to the way government works at the moment, which is part of the reason you want to sort of have bring that way of thinking into into government. But how do you, beyond spending, how do you start to get a government which is built around individual departments, which does have quite a weak centre, which is very unused to sort of long-term thinking, let alone sort of 10, 15-year thinking? How do you get them to think in kind of way, in missions, in a missions-oriented way? I'm sort of tempted to say that's Sue Gray's job, but. Uh, <laughs> um, Look, I think it is it's, uh, it's something Sue and I have talked about, actually. It is obviously what sort of work in, in progress for us. But my sense from being a Secretary of State is the civil service is incredibly responsive. I think, it's, I think this is a sort of why public debate is so, frankly, off the wall, because the civil service is incredibly responsive to the demands of a government, particularly a new government. And so I think there is an opportunity, and I think there's also an opportunity for people who've not been Secretaries of State before, new, a new government, to think, how are we going to do this differently? And, you know, different people have proposed different things. There's a family of departments that are most relevant to this area. You know, are there ways of collaborating? There, there was an Office of Criminal Justice Reform, where some of those, you probably know about this better than I do, where some of those departments work together. So there are, there are models, I think, uh, that we can draw, not to sort of reshape government and throw it all in the air, but to find ways in which you can, you know, the individual departments obviously continue to play their role, but but there is much more of a coming together well beyond a sort of cabinet committee system, which is, as Maura Wallace, my former permanent secretary, always said to me, was a sign of failure, not of success. Mm. Uh, indeed. I'm going to come to the audience just in one minute. I wanted to ask one final question, which is going back to this idea about catalytic yeah. investment. US, as you say, have put in huge amounts of money through IRA, EU are in a slightly slower fashion trying to figure out a, a large investment of their own. China has obviously put in huge amounts of money into electric vehicles. Where is our area of competitive advantage, given our economy is sort of smaller than those three? Where, where, where can we fit into this picture? I mean, I would identify there are a number of areas. I mean, first of all, offshore wind, 
because of partly because of what we did in the uh, last Labour government, sort of setting this off early, partly because, of, frankly, of the North Sea and our geographical advantages. The stalling of the recent offshore wind uh, auction was really disappointing, but you know, floating offshore wind is the next uh, sort of frontier. We're still the second largest generator of offshore wind in the world after, I think, after China. So there is huge opportunity in that. And then also to do with our seas, you know, hydrogen, the hydrogen economy, carbon capture. I mean, carbon capture in particular has massive potential. Uh, we were at the so-called ACORN project in Scotland, um, uh, Kira and I, uh, last week, looking at just some of the possibilities there. So, I mean, there's other possibilities. I'll probably have offended people in the room. I mean, tidal is something that Britain is strong in. There's obviously nuclear, which is, you know, SMRs offer potential. So I think there's a lot of areas, but I think they're the main areas that I would identify. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to wrap up this session now. We don't have time for any more, although I'm sure we could go on for a lot longer. So please join me in saying a big thank you to Ed Miliband. So Ed has now departed, but for some analysis on what he said, I'm joined on the stage by the CEO of the Centre for Progressive Policy, Charlotte Aldrich. Hello, Charlotte. Hello. And we have Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government and former Special Advisor to Theresa May, Giles Wilkes. Hello, Giles. Hi, Sam. So, Charlotte, you were listening to uh, Ed's speech and uh, our Q&A session. What did you make of what he had to say? Well, I was really encouraged to hear him talk about the role that clean energy and investment in clean energy can play in um, contributing to fair growth. He was really keen to emphasise that, particularly against a backdrop in which, according to latest polls, 78% of people agree that the UK is in a steep decline and and only 5% disagree. I think he was making... Uh, a very clear and compelling argument that Labour's emphasis on green investment can play a really central part in restoring that hope. But... um, There's always a but. (laughs) You know, he set out four principles for how Labour was going to approach that challenge. The role of missions came up, the emphasis on blended um, public and private sector investment, the role of the state um, in not only shaping how much investment, but where, um, and the importance of the economics of place. I mean, that for me was music to my ears at CPP. We think that we need to approach this whole agenda with a much greater emphasis on on place um, if we are going to achieve fair growth or what the Tories called level up. And then there was a kind of very labor, what role do unions play and and increasing um, worker voice. So all of these things, sort of of nice, common sense. Um, The exciting thing I thought was around the economics of place. Where I felt felt that he um, was less clear was A, on whether clean energy was going to be central to Labour's industrial strategy or wider economic policy. And I think this is an absolutely critical question. I think that's an area that Labour really need to kind of explore more deeply if we're going to go into the election feeling like there's a real plan to revive the economy. Um, And then the other aspect I thought was that he talked about the huge opportunities from transition, which could be true, but I thought he was light on how you tackle the risks and he wasn't really 
taking head on that question about the costs and how you fund those. I, I mean, I tried to push him on trade-offs and I felt he was inevitably sort of backed off having to deal with some of those those those, those trade-offs. Giles, how convinced were you as an economist by the economics of what he was saying? Well, I mean, can I, I mean, if I can mildly disagree with Charles, I've, ne- I've never seen Ed Miliband speak before in person. And I found I got a lot out of it, actually. I found that he was... Um, I mean, if I was to summarize it in one and a half tweets or so, I'd say he absolutely adores Joe Biden. He kept (laughs) citing Biden and aspects of the Biden plan. And in particular, some of those that Charlotte just referred to there, the unionization aspect, the fact, which is absolutely true, that Biden and his team have been swaying the investment towards areas that are frankly very Republican. Probably Mm. 60%, 70% Trump voting states have been getting large dollops of IRA money. They seem very grateful for it. Yeah, Yeah. it is, is, which is incredible as well. But Mm. it's one of the things that people say is terrible about industrial strategy, just give it to your friends. Well, in this case, he hasn't Mm. sent it to the sort of leafy democratic metropolitan areas. He sent it to deep red states where there are lower um, graduate quotients in the in the um, in the workforce. And Ed Miliband is turning around saying, you, "Look, you could do that for places like me, uh, my constituency in Doncaster." He um, he named a lot of um, technologies that he specifically thinks that the UK can be good at. In particular, I was very struck by him mentioning um, small modular nuclear reactors, which is a huge enthusiasm. Um, in a lot of places, because it's a lower risk way, in theory, of doing nuclear. But for some reason, no no country has actually carried through this. But they, this is an area where Labour would normally be very nervous. So, I mean, you asked me about the economics, and I'm not going to ignore that. Um, he is one of those people who sees green jobs as an opportunity, not a cost. And as Charlotte hints there, they're both. I mean, it's a huge amount of investment that we need to be doing, which I think at least Labour's been... a honest in saying we need to set aside a large amount to invest in order to make this green transition happen. It can't happen for purely regulation. But, you know, we are now in a really tight labour market. We are having to import hundreds of thousands of people to keep the, the wheels turning in our economy. I suspect we're going to be there maybe from now until the end of time. We've got a demographic situation that isn't going to change. The Western world is going to be importing labour. And that means that every every job is a kind of a cost. It's an allocation problem. So the thing he didn't talk about, not so much the fiscal cost, which is an awkward political issue, but frankly, £28 billion is a fluctuation between one OBR forecast and the next. It's not mm. something that labour should be absolutely pinned down on because goodness knows what's going to be the case in five or six years' time. But what are we going to do about the fact that we need those workers for all sorts of other things, like the social care issues, like the NHS issues, like getting local government working again. So I don't think he can be expected to answer that all on his own. But I do think as a, he's a really interesting character because he's not only a future, future uh, holds a really important portfolio, this very positive green investment portfolio, but he's a former treasury spad. His job Mm. used to be telling everybody, no, you can't have the thing you want. Mm. And there's nobody with this experience in the Labour Party coming into government, nothing like this much experience. And he's he's somebody who's worn both of those hats before. When Gordon Brown was at his flintiest and telling everybody no, Ed Miliband and Ed Balls were the people next to him. So that's the bit that really interests me. How mm. do you get the Treasury? Well, and that's and that's kind of one of the trade-offs I was I was trying to to get at is you know, we don't know, as you say, we don't know what the situation's gonna be. Rachel Reeves has said she wants to commit to a set of fiscal rules. We don't know what those fiscal rules are yet. They yep. might be a bit different from the current ones, but one way or another she's gonna set some rules. We don't know what's gonna happen to the economy. We may find that those rules are not being met, and then they have a problem because mm. they're promising all this stuff and they've also promised to meet these rules. Like presumably 
you know, it, 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 as we've seen with, with the Conservatives, the rules can be broken from time to time, but that you have to hit quite a high bar before politicians are prepared to accept that. Yeah. I mean, and um, look, they've got a huge problem with their fiscal rules. But I would just say the £28 billion is a part of the reason for that because it's a commitment. Mm. But in a sense, in particular, following last week's tax cutting um, autumn statement, the problem is more in public services generally. Mm. And the public services need, and I think Ben Franklin for the CPP has been doing some of the work on this, need tens of billions of pounds more yeah. to get them back. Now, the problem right now with our fiscal rules as well is they're always based on a forecast. And the forecast waves around like anything in four or five years' time. And yet it affects current policy. And we, and we at the Institute for Government, to give a th shout out for another think tank here, are trying to think about how do you remove that volatility from the system. And I know Labour are going to want to as well, because they want the credibility it gives. They want the discipline it gives for like making sure that Whitehall doesn't all overbid for everything and the message it sends to the markets. But you can't have your policies changing every six months because the fiscal rules have just said, oh, we've changed our mind about the year 2029. And Charlotte, that's some of the, the theme of some of the work that you've been doing here. What's your sort of plan for, for helping Labour avoid getting trapped in, in the way that the current government has been? Yeah, well, two points. So first, I'd say I thought it was quite interesting that Ed potentially gave a bit of chink or a bit of a leeway on the fiscal rules when he said something to the effect that uh, Rachel is a good shadow chancellor and, and will be a good chancellor because she knows when to say no and she knows when to say yes. And that made me think, ah, well, if you say that Labour's prioritising green, does that mean that somehow green investment gets special treatment? And that's one way that they could potentially look at the fiscal rules and could argue that net zero is so important for the future of humanity that it has to be given, it has to be given special treatment. More generally, I have been encouraged by talk uh, from Rachel and others around her team that they are trying to buy some, a little bit more leeway. And that aligns with recommendations we've put out that look to how you determine what's credible in terms of borrowing to invest based on long run returns to growth. And we set out a number of principles as to kind of how you could determine that, whether it makes a net positive return to our economic potential. And I think if we can start to see Labour making more positive noises around that, I mean, that's not overly controversial. Jim O'Neill, who, who we've had at the conference today, is recommending something similar, Andy Haldane similarly. I think there is a space for Labour to kind of nudge the fiscal rules in such a way that they politically, they can show that they're being tough on spend, not getting sucked into the kind of traditional tax spend traps that Tories will set for them and their own kind of ideological history um, begets them. What I'd love to see is actually a bit more shaping of a narrative that builds on that as a means to credibly investing in the kind of 28 billion program. Because at the moment, Labour seems to be stuck on, are we or aren't we going to commit to that amount? Where mm. are you going to get that money from, interest rates remain high. Does this seem um, sustainable given that we're reaching historic levels of, in terms of the cost of servicing our national debt? I think there is a bigger story that Labour has started to, to tell, but I'd really like to see more on in the run to the election. I mean, Giles, you, you've worked with the Treasury before and are now working on, uh, on the Treasury for the Institute for Government and some of these questions. Um, do you think that 
it, it's a, it's sort of culturally opposed to the ideas that Charlotte's talking about, and, and having a sort of more flexible approach, and will push back against Labour if they try and do that, or is it actually the politicians who really drive this? I think it is not. Uh, it's not a cultural opposition. Although, if you get brought up there, and your job is often look, control this budget. This budget is too high. Can you bring it down? It's going to be very difficult to. F- take that mindset away and say, oh, by the way, your job now is to enable a thing that we might be, think is really good. So I don't think that should be entirely discounted, that there are going to be cultural issues because, you know, that's their job. No one else is worrying about the deficit. Or de- mm. There is no one else to say no, right? Yeah, that's exactly. They, what they always say. After us, who? Yeah. And so, um, but um, I think more of the problems is, I mean, it's the institutions and the short-termism that comes from them. If you're told, by the way, you're going to do really well if you've got some goodies for your chancellor's budget and it's always in about six months. Mm. Then you're going to have a, lot, a real short-term focus within the institution. And also, it's the difficulty about banking invest-to-save ideas. So suppose somebody comes up with a really good idea, like we've got this six billion a year for home insulation. We all know that home insulation is a really good um, rate of return kind of investment, at least the easy stuff like cavity and loss insulation and so on. And so we know that this is good for the country. We're going to have lower energy bills as a nation if we do this investment. But the Treasury will be going, well, that's all very well for you, but I'm six billion out of pocket and it's someone else who's getting this money. You know, I'm going to have a problem and my problem is dealing with those numbers that are going to turn up in six months times OBR report. You see what I mean? Mm. So the problem is making the, the making everything align perfectly so that they have the same incentives as the country. And the other the other problem is most ideas are bad. Most of the ideas <laughs> that the, the Treasury has to true. deal with are really, really bad. I mean, not not I mean, we, we've been policy advisors, advisors, we've been in government. Most of the stuff that comes through is someone really impressionable and excitable and uh, had a bit mm. too much co- coffee that day saying, hey, I've just met somebody. And they said, if only the Treasury would stop being so mean, we could do this really great thing. And mostly the reason the Treasury is stopping it is because they've seen it eight times before and it's got terrible value for money. So you do need to allow those things while still allowing those rules against stupid mm. ideas from stopping. And that is that is why I'm quite interested that they've got former Treasury people like Ben and like Ed, you know, who, who know about turning down ideas Mm. and if it can get past them then the idea is still good but you mustn't get rid of those safeguards because the treasury people i've interviewed for that project i mean they want great things to happen it's just there's an awful lot of bad things yes you can't just say yes to every bit every proposal that turns up that says this will save you money in the long run because Uh most of them definitely will not say yeah we wouldn't have a deficit a debt of 100 percent of gdp if all the ideas have been that good i I want to ask you about missions because labor are very big on missions uh, even though the public hasn't exactly uh, caught fire with the idea as yet um, and Ed Miliband talked a lot about them in his talk in our Q&A. You actually did submissions in yeah, government when you were in number 10. Uh, little known, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but nevertheless, what was the process of trying to oh, make wow. a kind of mission-oriented approach happen in government? And what... What pitfalls lie ahead for Labour? Oh my lord! I mean, this is the, this. You're the first person ever to ask me about this. I'm going to rattle my brain for about five and a half years ago. We had four grand challenges, which were meant to theme the industrial strategy. They were like the clean growth challenge, the future of mobility, the growth of artificial intelligence and data, 
and um, the ageing economy. And we thought these are four areas we should group the sort of interventions and policy ideas that are coming along. And then we thought there should be a mission underneath each of those. It's already beginning to find, sound sort of highly technical. But we, um, and we thought, so there needs to be specific things. I wonder if I can remember them. One of them, this sounds like an extremely dark joke right now, was to raise the healthy life expectancy of the country by a certain amount, by certain years. And I, then there was yet. a pandemic. Yeah, yet. we're thinking we should maybe reset the, the moment mm from which that's measured but um for example in the clean growth one we had uh, an ambition to turn a certain proportion of the housing stock into uh, zero carbon housing so take carbon out of mm. that system through something like an insulation plan and um so on future of mobility it would have been something along the lines of that 2030 no more sale of electric vehicles that kind of plan so mm. So what they have is a target, something that you think you could do that's stretching, that, that will pull together lots of different instruments from lots of different areas. So it's not just one department's own sort of mm. goal, but something that pulls everyone else together. And um, the problem is, A, it really needs massive buying from lots of other government departments. Again, anyone who's been in the government knows that there isn't a government. There's just all these departments working uh, against one another using the tool of non-communication to achieve their ends. And so unless you've got a really powerful prime minister that looks like they're going to last and really understands this stuff and can bang the table and bring everyone together, then it won't work. So that's the number one thing. They need to be owned by the centre of government because it's about bringing together lots of streams of policy behind a single goal. They're really difficult. They shouldn't be about absolutely anything. They need to be something where that kind of approach is a appropriate. I haven't examined the Labour ones closely enough to know whether they are like that, but mm. I think they sometimes need to be quite micro, like land a man on the moon is actually quite micro. It's like one yeah. man on that moon yeah. rather than make the world a better place. Yeah, is yeah. Not it's got to be specific. It's right? got to be really specific and targeted. Um, yes. it? You know? So design them really, really carefully, get everyone to buy into them and um, get number 10 in the treasury behind them because otherwise it's just another piece of government comms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would say that if Labour is serious about restructuring the way that Whitehall operates around those five missions in a way that Giles describes. I think it could be potentially quite a radical way of kind of enabling some better cultures and behaviours to percolate, you know, maybe even, goodness me, actually for government to deliver some stuff. Um, but let's take, say, a recent example of a mission, perhaps by any other name, which is Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda. Mm. I think actually that was something that the government recognised was a kind of defining purpose beyond get Brexit done, that a popular prime minister who looked like with an 80-seat majority, the world was at his feet, particularly after, say, the Hartley-Paul by-election, and you know he was at the pinnacle of his power, brought in Andy Haldane to work with Michael Gove, effective minister, former chief economist at the bank, to come in and kind of get a grip of this agenda to define it, to then set out actually 12 what were called missions in the levelling up white paper. And then, you know, as a former civil servant, I read that white paper and I thought if I was a perm sec in any other government department, in fact, maybe even in DLUC where the paper was written, I'd have no idea oh. no, how was, that should was, translate to rock. what I should but, be prioritising in. But, but, but the reason it was such a mess was the Treasury wouldn't support it, right? So we go back to the same problem of if the whole government won't get behind something, it's very hard to make these yeah, goals I mean, happen. I don't, think it, I don't think it's strictly true that the Treasury weren't behind it, but there was a whole 
bunch of problems that we've seen since around kind of implementation and, you know, fragmented funding pots and lack of capacity in local government because the sector's been hollowed out over there was the last no money 10 behind years. It. There was no money behind it. I mean, when the first 80 pages of a document are about the history of cities, it's oh not a good sign. And um, do you remember how many different concepts of capital they introduced? Six. It was, I mean, we've got human capital, <laughs> social capital, physical capital, intellectual. I mean, and, and what yeah. were you meant to then do? Which one of these capitals are you Say meant what? to chase yeah. after? So fault on all sides. Giles, we're going to come to, to a close in a minute, but I wanted to ask you about growth more generally. We've got all of political parties at the moment saying we don't want to raise taxes. Mm. We don't want to uh, spend less on public services. Growth is the answer. Growth is how we're going to get out of this situation. How much can domestic policy actually do to generate growth? When you look at the differences between countries, you've had very different governments, very different approaches to policy. They're not actually wildly different. How how important is what a government does in actually doing that versus all the other things that happen around the world that drive economics? Well, I don't want to sound too negative, but um, governments can't do anyway. <laughs> no, I'm not going to be too negative. I'm going to, I'm going to look up a blog of mine from October 2021 called "You Cannot Just Unleash Growth." Mm. If you like, you can cause an awful lot of damage. That's what I mean by negative. If if mm. you want to say you can't possibly um, do very much about growth, just sit back and don't worry about policy. Well, look what's happened with Brexit, which has definitely lowered mm. our future growth path. Look at what happened to the Italian economy from the late 70s to now. It's mm. the most incredible downward alpine curve you could possibly imagine. So you can make really, really bad choices. So you've got to still care about the growth impact of policy. Now, the bigger problem is we look back on the growth we achieved after the Second World War, like two or three or four percent regularly. Two percent was a bad year. The Italians and the Germans were getting six, seven, eight, nine percent during their sort of glorious 30 years. We're not going to go back to that. The the, the sort of ramp up of manufacturing, which is naturally more growth enhancing, productivity in, in manufacturing just during that period in particular with the these new industries like autos and aerospace and computer manufacturing mm. just exploded. We're only 8 or 9% manufacturing now. That's not going to go back to 20 or 30%. So it's very difficult to see now that so much of it is about human services that the frontier ability of economies can grow at that pace. And this is usually where someone says AI, but you actually just wrote a very good piece on why AI yeah, is probably I mean, not going to save I mean, us all. As far as I see, I mean, people get really excited about AI. I suspect it's because they've read Ian e M. Banks novels where <laughs> these incredible minds can just sculpt planets in their spare time. I don't think AI is necessarily going to do that. Put it this way, the internet, which still astounds me every time I turn mm. on my smartphone, hasn't achieved that. I don't think AI is bigger than the internet, although reasonable minds can differ. But here's the really big but. This is about the performance of frontier economies, the ones at the bleeding edge of possibility mm. who are doing everything right, you know, like Switzerland, Singapore, parts of the United States. Apart from areas of London, we're nowhere near there. So could we do better? Absolutely. I mean, if we could better connect the inside of cities with the outside of cities outside of London and bring that high productivity you sound, find in the centre of places like Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, and make everybody participate in that, we could achieve an awful lot. It'd just take a lot of sustained good policy making. So yeah, we oh, can do easy. better. That'll, we'll, that'll be easy. Yeah. Um, Charlotte, how much hope do you have in, in this sort of growth agenda to, to get us out of the hole we're in at the moment? Well... I think the economic forecasts continue to be bleak. I think the fiscal situation is chronic. Um, As I said, hope. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> but I'm hopeful to hear, to go back to Ed Miliband, that he recognises the extent to which the economics of place matter. Because without that, you won't be able to 
unleash, unlock, drive all these buzzwords that are typically associated yeah. with growth. Rocket boost. That's right. Mm. Um, Rocket boosts burn up and fall off. That's why oh. I, never, I don't like that metaphor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anything that like the untapped potential that we at CPP and others have identified, um, call them clusters, hotspots, whatever they are, they are out there. We just need to be able to connect them up and actually tackle a few of these really thorny policy issues that have eluded us for a long time. And my favorite one is skills. If we can do all that because we know what we need to do, and that also does give me hope, I think we can kind of nudge our way towards something that isn't quite as bleak. But... This feels like some appropriately cautious hope. I think which that would be a gonna... wonderful slogan from that. Slogan. Yes. Towards something not quite Inching as bleak. Inching ourselves towards something less bleak yes. with labour. But, but the fair growth vision is the right one. And so I've got to be hopeful that with an incoming Labour government, if they are committed to that and they can rally the resources of central and local government, we could, we could do something. Well, we will finish on that on that cautiously optimistic note. Thanks very much for listening. Remember that you can subscribe to our Substack for ad-free episodes released a day early. If you have any thoughts or questions, tweet at the PowerTest or email pod at powertest.co.uk and we will see you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.